0: Welcome to Beyond Politics broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and recently I read an article with a following paragraph. Marjorie Taylor Greene could marry Hunter Biden, put a pronouns on her Twitter bio, and give herself a real-time abortion on Tucker Carlson's desk while wearing a rainbow-colored N95 mask. She'd still win. They'd vote for a kumquat as long as it had an R next to it. And when I read that, I knew I had to have the author of those sentences on Beyond Politics, and now I do. Jason Sattler is better known as LOLGOP on Twitter. He's a writer based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He was a columnist and member of the USA Today Board of Contributors from 2017 to 2021. And his recent article entitled, Marjorie Taylor Greene Has Already Won, Donate Money to Win Elections, Not Lose Them?, actually inspired me to write an article that's also coming out shortly on the editorial board. It may already be out by the time you hear this on pod. Maybe it's not by the time you hear it on radio. And my article is about the larger problem of Democrats getting way over-focused on the wrong stuff and kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. I'm really looking forward to talking about all of that with Jason. Welcome to Beyond Politics.
1: Thanks for having me, Matt.
0: I, it's a pleasure to have you. I feel a little bit like I'm interviewing Bruce Wayne here because you're sort of the (laughs) mild-mannered billionaire, Jason Sattler, living your life in in Ann Arbor and occasionally going to, what's the name? What's the name of the big deli in Ann Arbor? Oh,
1: Zingerman's, yes. Zingerman's, yeah. You're probably
0: like hanging out at Zingerman's, but at night- you don a cowl and you go out and you fight crime on Twitter as LOL GOP, where you're anything but mild-mannered, you're sort of dropping roundhouse kicks to your 350,000 Twitter followers. My goodness, it, do, you, do you live a double life? Like, is is that kind of an intentional setup?
1: You know, for a long time, I was anonymous. I, I when I, I started this a long time ago. That's probably why I have so many followers and when really kind of probably took wind in the 2020, 2012 election. And I, I stayed anonymous because I think people would have been so disappointed to find out who I actually am. For instance, I wanted people to believe I was Tag Tag Romney. That was my big dream back in twenty twelve. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am really super mild mannered. I'm just a you know social media guy by day who does you know content marketing. And then I, I just once Twitter opened up, I was just like, oh, here I can yell online, and you can yell out the window, and, and occasionally someone hears you, and and then goes, hey, I agree with that yelling, and I will send it to my followers now as well. So it was a it was a virtuous cycle. But I actually think oh. You know, being part of this, I mean, I only exist in politics through social media. I actually think the problem we're talking about is, is largely a problem of social media and how much outrage kind of leads us around by the bit, you know? Oh, absolutely.
0: No, that's that's exactly where I was sort of going. Well, first of all, cultural anthropologists of the future, I hope they unearth the sentences that you just unleashed about like, hey, social media, Twitter especially, is just an opportunity to yell about stuff and, and maybe people get excited about it. I'd say for 99% of people on Twitter, their yelling is non-productive. Your yelling is actually productive and insightful, which is one of the reasons why I really wanted to amplify it and highlight it, but you're right. It does seem to connect to the point that, I mean, you kind of got my head spinning with your article in the direction that I ended up going. I mean, that's, that's really what you were driving at is that we have been kind of plugged into the online outrage machine and it's turned into an online outrage cash machine that's sending our energy and our attention and our cash to the wrong places
1: that's absolutely right and you know i mean i think everyone kind of says outrage like it's a bad thing and, and i think people from 2016 to 2020 thing to have uh, an outrage magnifier, an outrage, a huge, giant digital megaphone. I think that kind of helped maybe save democracy as much as it probably gave us Donald Trump. So it's kind of like the antidote and the cure. I mean, the antidote and the disease at the same time. Uh, right. It's, it's like a,
0: John Lewis. It's like, there's good trouble and there's good outrage.
1: Right. Yeah. There is definitely great outrage. And there's a lot of people saying great things. And there's a lot of people complain about the quality of, of, of social media. And I think they're largely complaining about the algorithm on Facebook and and, and it is terrible, and the algorithm on Twitter is getting terrible. But if you use TweetDeck and you get and you make your own feed, you can get great information all day long. So I do. I don't want to. And it gave me my life writing about politics. And so I. I can't. I can't disparage my, my 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 wife or my my wife's other rooms. My 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 mistress. My, without uh, without actually saying that. I think there is extreme value in this. I think there's actually been great examples of social media channeling outrage in the right place. And right. it's just, we're not seeing it right now. And, and and it's never been more important. And the reason I tried to focus on Marjorie Taylor Greene is because she is, of all of the people who have kind of emerged in the last, as she is just like MAGA in, was dropped in a Petri dish. Someone put a, a radioactive spider bit it and she became alive and famous for yelling at Parkland kids, survivors of the shooting Makes She really is just the worst of the worst. And you just love, you just have to believe this woman cannot be reelected she is just in our brains it just makes no sense so we're like whoever's running against her has got to be able to beat her and then you look at her district and it's i think it's either a plus 38 or a plus 39 trump district a 45 point lean according to 538 meaning it's 45 percent more republican than a district in the world she is in the most perfect district and she is not only not in trouble everything she's doing is helping her the more we donate the more she gets and that's just a business for her too So, I mean, ultimately down deep, that's what I think. But so, so, so she's kind of like the perfect example. You could donate a billion dollars. You could find the perfect candidate. That guy, if he got within 10 points, would be breaking all the odds. It's just redistricting, gerrymandering works or they wouldn't be doing it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, you're so right that if MAGA had an id, it would be embodied and brought to life through some kind of a bizarre seance ritual in the form of marjorie taylor green it's like that classic star trek episode where some civilization decided to cast off all of its evils and it becomes a sludge and there you go there's marjorie taylor green and actually it's interesting in the article that i drafted kind of in response inspired by sparked by your article i actually had a paragraph about that where i was saying hey people look i get it like it's a, such an understandable impulse it, it, she, it, there are some characters in our politics who have become such a visceral draw to our own ids that of course we want to respond and the Supreme Court has said money is speech and this is this is the way we've sort of been primed as political consumers is you you get the stimulus it's Pavlovian it's like do you hate this yes I hate this I this is outrageous this was horrible like I, th- this person should not be a member of our government. Well, then the response is to give money and you should give money to whoever's sending the the plea at the time. But you point out in your article that this is it, it just kind of misses this basic political reality. and it's not it's not a productive, I mean, you were drawing this distinction a moment ago between kind of productive outrage and non-productive outrage. And we're kind of being used by our anger. We're not using it to channel our efforts into things that are productive.
1: Yeah, and people recognize how nuanced and how difficult politics is. I mean, for someone like, I am basically like a fantasy baseball fan who gets to talk about fantasy baseball and, and manages to take it. I've never run a campaign. I, but, but, I mean, I did when I was like an 18 or 19 years old and, and I'm, I'm talking about, so like it's my participation in politics is the same as everyone's participation in politics, except for people like you who have actually worked on campaign is that I, I just want to believe it works a certain way. But so we have these debates about how should everyone's going around saying, oh, you can't say defund, you can't say defund the police, you can't say defund the police. I don't want to get into the messaging because I'm not an expert on that. Anyone who I I think not Shankar Osario, who has a a podcast called Words to Win By, is an extraordinary. I I think people should listen to her. I think people should listen to people who've won campaigns on messaging. I will put my opinion out there, but I'm not 100% sure because who knows. But I will tell you this. I will tell you that giving money to anyone who's running against Marjorie Taylor Greene is giving money to Marjorie Taylor Greene because the more that her race gets attention, the more money she raises, the more points she's going to win by, and the more races that you, you your article, and I hope people read this, just lays out the plenitude of races that are going that are starving. These, these are candidates who are starving. We know exactly, the maps are all coming out. We know exactly who is, who is starving. And we also have the secondary attack that's going on on the machinery of democracy, where they're going after clerks, they're going after school board representatives. These races are getting way more attention through Steve Bannon, who has focused um, his, his movement, the MAGA movement, on these lower ballot races. They're getting way more attention, way more money than they've ever gotten before. And in response, we're giving more money to the four people who are going to uh, fighting for the chance to lose to Marjorie Taylor Greene. And you know what? Republicans are doing this a little bit on their side. I will say this. They're not doing it to the degree we're doing it. They're propping up people who are going to run against Greene or run against Cawthorn who are going to lose. Because the problem isn't that, that Marjorie Taylor Greene is a terrible candidate. The problem is she's a great candidate for that exact district. Madison Cawthorn is a great candidate for that exact district. They couldn't pick a better candidate. They want this person who pisses us off. If they didn't piss us off, then she would have a chance of losing. But she's so good at pissing us off that she cannot lose. If she were running for Georgia's actually a state, there's a great article that came out today from Larry Sabato, the crystal ball from right, the University right. of Virginia, about where things are trending. And if you look at the, where there is good news, Georgia in general, there's amazing news. There are races to win. Rapha, uh, Raphael Warnock, Senator Warnock, his race is crucial to win. Every if you gave the money directly, people. Are, whenever I say this, people go, "Well, it could help get turnout in the district, and that could help Warnock." Give the money to Warnock. You know, what I mean? if, you're, if you want to help Warnock, this is not. It's the money gets wasted, and we saw this. Everyone knows the examples. We saw this in Maine, and we saw this in Kentucky, especially where two Senate candidates who seemed like they were competitive at the time ended up losing by double digits, ran terrible campaign, ended up with millions of dollars in the bank, and and you can't run a good campaign in these states that you just can't win. You could have won in Maine. That is potentially, that was a poorly run race. But you could give Amy, I mean, Amy McGrath, who ran against Mitch McConnell, you could have given her a billion dollars, and she still would have lost by five points if she ran a beautiful, perfect campaign, which she didn't. It's, it's, It's hard to run a beautiful, perfect campaign. Not everybody can be Barack Obama in 2008. Almost no one can. So we have to look at the reality of what we're facing. And what we're facing is that Republicans have a plan to steal the 2024 election. It's through the state legislatures. Republicans are much better at winning state legislatures. They know where to spend the money. They are steely-eyed. They are pragmatic. They do not waste money trying to... They, they put someone up to run against AOC, but they don't ever believe that, that person's going to win. That person usually is a person of color who can then be on Fox News and just be like, AOC is a point. It's just, it's a, it's a useful kind of... But Democrats are taking this far too seriously. And, and, and it, this may seem like a small problem, but the amount of money that is, that is going to be spent on Marjorie Taylor Greene's race is going to be as much or more that it's going to be spent on every race for the Michigan House. And this is, was about $60 million. And this is the primaries in general. So this isn't just a small problem. If we took the money that we're going to waste on that race and put it into the Michigan House, you stop and you won the Michigan House, which now we have fair maps because we gave ourselves fair maps in the 2018 election where we gave ourselves a really good anti gerrymandering amendment to our, our state constitution. We have the first chance to win the House forever. But the question is, will we have the money and will we have the candidates? You need both. We can't choose the candidates. The, I mean, I guess we do through primary, but the real power we have is our money.
0: Well, I mean, that, that does kind of put it beautifully. I mean, first of all, boy, there's so much to unpack in that. You, you just, it, it, I just want to commend to our listeners, if you're listening on pod go back and re-listen to like the last three minutes of of what jason just said there's so much great wisdom locked up in this i don't even know where to start i feel like a a lion just like regarding a a herd of zebra and just i'm just seeing stripes everywhere i mean there'll be way less wisdom going
1: on going forward forward. (laughs) i'll be i'll be less dense yeah
0: Well, you're totally no you're totally right i mean i guess i'll start with the example that you just gave of you win one chamber in one legislature, right? And what's the value proposition that you get out of that? The example that that I used, I had the former chair of the Ohio Democratic Party, David Pepper, on my show, oh, about six weeks ago when the Ohio Supreme Court first came out with its ruling with a majority led, it was a 4-3 majority on their Supreme Court led by a Republican. And They said that you can't gerrymander the way the Republicans who have a trifecta in Ohio, they control the governor, they control both chambers of the legislature. You can't gerrymander the way they wanted to gerrymander. They threw out the maps. And I was pointing out with David on the show, this didn't just happen. We didn't just lock into this. It was the result of a very intentional strategy where David and a ton of people working with him, I'm not just giving the credit to him. They, they implemented a very intentional step-by-step approach to win those Supreme Court seats, to, to overcome, they put a referendum on the ballot and they made, they created the legal standard that they would then have the seats in the Supreme Court to uphold that throughout those maps. And you're giving the Michigan example. And my point is, you alluded a moment ago to being a little bit of like a fantasy baseball kind of mindset player when it comes to politics, that's actually a very good way to think about it. Because I think what you were saying in your article and what I tried to capture in my article was this idea of, it's almost a money ball type thing. If we sat down and we said, all right, let's take all the spending that we know Democrats are capable of because we keep setting fundraising records cycle after cycle. So we know that this is the money that we have available on our side. And we tried, through some kind of a mathematical formula, to look at instances like the Michigan House, the Ohio redistricting result, and said, where can we get the most value if our first goal is to protect democracy, and our second goal is to advance policy that represents our shared values, or stop policy that we find anathema to our shared values? We would apportion the money we're spending in politics very differently. If we took a kind of money ball, where's the value kind of approach and we're not doing it. And you get it. I get it. The reasons are totally understandable, but it does connect back to your point at the very beginning, which is a lot of this is about Twitter and social media. When I ran campaigns, I used to do a version of what you were just talking about. I would think of the greatest villain, because every good story has a villain. I would think of the greatest villain at the time. It would be George W. Bush or whoever was the Republican creating the most outrage. And I would link, (laughs) right. And I would, I I would link my, the the opponent in our race to those people, to those avatars that people didn't like. And I would do it through fundraising letters or through emails. But now Email has become so outrageously huge, so incredibly invasive, so pervasive, and social media and text messaging, which is, yeah. you know, a, a, a fundraising means we don't even talk about, and it's become so inundating to our psyches that we almost can't help it anymore. So, just to kind of bring it full circle, we are getting dragged along by this. We're not making those intentional, strategic, money ball esque choices we're getting dragged along by understandable emotional responses and we're ending up just way out of whack with the best possible course and we don't have margin for error here and that that kind of sucks from your standpoint and my standpoint because we're shooting ourselves in the foot and we could be doing so much better
1: actually i think that you've one if i had unlimited resources and comu- and computer skills I want to build a site where it goes in and puts it. You put the candidate's name in there and what are their chances of winning? Gives you an A through F kind of like NRA rating. of Is this worth giving money to or not? Oh, that's smart. Yeah. But I honestly think that wouldn't fix most of the problem because this is, as you said, at its heart, an emotional problem.
0: Right. Right. Well, you know what? Okay. Let's build on your idea for a second. Maybe that would be one component of it. Like, I, yeah. I know, I'm I'm way over baking this. Like, already our listeners no, no, like, I'd love you to said there'd it. be no math in this podcast. But yeah. like, what you could do is you could you could evaluate someone's chance of winning. I mean, this is what's happened in, in the NBA, right? Yeah. Like, they figured out, well, three points are worth more than two points. So what you need to do is multiply the chance that someone will make a shot times the number of points you get from the shot. So in a way, what you would almost have to do do that that step you just outlined right you'd have to have some evaluation of what's your baseline chances well there's actually you can do that there's plenty of sites that that kind of do that like you cited cook political report right so you could do that and then you might have to have some kind of a metric of well how much value into democracy yeah this seat and then if you want you could throw in a kicker right like a bonus value If you're kicking out someone who's particularly crappy, right, (laughs) you could give. So I I, I mentioned in my article, I don't know if this will survive um, the editing process for any writers out there that um, sometimes these these things uh, go through a little bit of a ringer, rightly so. But I put an example of a particular state senator in Minnesota, Warren Limmer, who authored their 2012 Minnesota Constitutional Amendment to ban gay marriage. So maybe if you're up against a guy like that, you give a little kicker. It's like, this guy's a particular jerk. We'd really love to get him out of office, yeah. but I, I love, I love your idea. We should work on that, but I we're going to have to do it after we take a break. <sighs> All right. Excel and the beyond politics podcast. Uh, we're going to be right back for much, much more of this very informative conversation in just a minute. Welcome back to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I'm having about as much fun on the radio and on podcast as I've had it in a long time, talking to Jason Sattler. Jason is better known in his uh, superhero alter ego form as LOL GOP on Twitter, where he has a massive army of followers who hang on his every tweet, but he also writes he he was a columnist and member of the usa today board of contributors from 2017 until 2021 and he recently wrote an article for a publication that i also write for the editorial board which i urge people to check out and subscribe to it's awesome and he made this fascinating point about how democrats are just way out of whack we we allow our understandable emotional impulses to govern what races we focus on what what issues we fund and what candidates we fund And it's totally not aligned with where do we get the most value if our goals are to protect democracy and to advance some things that we believe in that would actually make people's lives better off. Jason, in the article that I wrote in response to the article that you wrote, now all we need to do is take a version of this conversation, transcript it, turn it into an article, then we can both talk about it. (laughs) Uh, I quoted Ezra Klein, the New York Times columnist who he, he would kind of succinctly labeled the problem as Democrats' shiny objects. Do you think that that's also sort of a, a pervasive underlying factor here? I, I personally felt like I hear a lot, especially in the 2020 Democratic presidential primaries, I heard lots of strains of this from the candidates in their references to we need big, bold, fill in the blank, big, bold legislation, big, bold action, big, bold policy, whatever it is. I wonder if Klein's onto something here that there's something in our mental makeup and our DNA that we really do chase big, shiny objects. And we sort of, it's very easy for us to overlook the real spade work under the surface that goes into making change, into into advancing the ball on on things that we care about. Do Do you have that same sense?
1: I, I do think there, that, that problem exists at two levels. It exists on, on the base level, where we have a bunch of people who are activated largely in, from two waves, from the Obama wave and then from the anti-Trump wave. So you kind of have people who have generally are looking for excitement. <laughs> That's what that has in, 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 in line. And, and the exciting things are, you know, getting Mitch McConnell out of office or beating Ted Cruz, which almost happened. That's, I, mean, I, I actually want to tie this up with the discussion about Texas, because I actually think shiny objects sometimes may pay off. And there is the bigger problem of the real money doesn't come from us. <laughs> I mean, Sarah Gideon and, and, and Amy McGrath raised probably together about $150 million, which are 200, almost $100 million, an amazing amount of money. But there are billions of dollars that are being spent. I think it's literally almost $2 billion on, on these elections. And the big donors on the Republican side are just way more uh, focused on the ground level. They saw, they saw what was happening in Ohio. They get how you steal uh, and you keep them. By keeping from people from voting, by st- they have the, the the cut and paste voting anti-voting laws that they make sure get passed in every state. They they get power and they keep, they design the system to keep their power and they and they and they want to separate their power from the popularity of the policies because in general Republican policies are unpopular, whereas Democratic donors come in, swing in, they get hard, they get huge, and they understand the, the value of winning the presidential election. Ironically, that hasn't turned into uh, winning the popular vote in the last seven, every, every time since 1992, except for once, has basically not turned into a control of the Supreme Court, which is basically the long-term goal of winning the presidency. So there's basically the sustainable power of winning the presidency shows up in the Supreme Court. And Republicans have even managed to figure out how to outdo us on that. But you look at shiny objects, and when they come down at individual candidate, you could say Georgia was a shiny object a few years ago but Stacey Abrams put in the groundwork I mean in her group Fair Fight gets tons of big donors and Democrats are starting to see that now if you look at this other I reference this article by Crystal Ball University of Virginia Larry Sabato's publication where things are trending it looks like Texas is just trending further to the left than Florida Florida used mm. to be the you know, which is depressing. It's just because MAGA. It's basically like a black hole that's sucking MAGA from the rest of the country down down to it. Everyone's retiring there. They it's older. It's becoming wider. It's becoming more and more Republican. And they also we don't get mentioned this something that Ron DeSantis did as soon as he got in. Florida voters had just voted to give which has over a million felons who one of their who want their voting rights back something that almost every other state in the union does i think only two or three states don't, was this would have been the most biggest re-enfranchisement of voters since the voting rights act and ron desantis basically gutted it with a poll tax disenfranchising more black voters at one time than anyone alive and that's why republicans love him you wonder why they love desantis so much is because he was so effective at consolidating power but then you look at texas Texas is, 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 has been the goal. It is Everyone has been set for decades. I, I grew up in California. I saw I had Republican governors growing up. We voted for Reagan. We voted for Bush the first time. It seemed like we were a swing state for, for our lives. And that changed fast. And that had a lot to do with dem, uh, demographics and a lot to do with just the state in general t- turning left. Texas is always supposed to follow the path of California. We're now almost 40 years later, <laughs> and it has not yet fallen. In, but it looks like if there was a state that's trending that way, it probably won't be 2022 or 2024, but it's coming within this cycle, I meaning before the next redistricting, there's there's competitiveness. And the voting laws there are so atrocious that Republicans have, they really do have a chokehold on power. But there's a group called Ground Game Texas that if, if I were going to say, who do you want to give money to? I would say run for something as a group you referenced in there. Your democracy docket, where Mark Elias is fighting to, to make sure that the elections are fair. If, you, if you're looking for easy places to donate to. Another one, if you want a long shot, if you, rather than voting, uh, I mean, giving your money to someone who's running against Marjorie Taylor Green, consider Ground Game Texas. They have a strategy where they're trying to build up voters um, and build up uh, left-wing voters by doing propositions like legalizing marijuana on the local level and building up the actual voter base. And this, to me, is the kind of like steely-eyed, non-shiny object thinking that I think that the, the, the Democrats have kind of lacked in the past and are starting to kind of understand it institutionally, but that doesn't mean that emotionally on social media, it's thinking.
0: Well, I think you've turned me around on this because you're right. Just like we were saying there's good outrage, there's good obsession with shiny objects. And I I guess you've also kind of demonstrated to me and I, I hadn't thought about it this way, that of course we're all prone to this. There's just a different version of it on the right and the left. And I wonder if that kind of points at the basic problem here, which is that in a way, Democrats have been dealt a much harder hand than Republicans in our setup and in the current kind of axis of ideology that that we have in this country and that Republicans are fundamentally and I I don't mean this in sort of the plain english version they're fundamentally destructive or they're conservative they don't yeah. want to do anything they don't want they don't want things to change by definition but they also aren't looking to build anything. They're not really looking to accomplish very much. Whereas Democrats or people on the left are by definition constructive. They want to accomplish things. And I think what it comes down to is it's awfully hard to make real change. And it's so easy given the how how seductive the big shiny objects are to think in terms of, You've got a problem. All right, we need a big, bold, often progressive solution for it. Whereas you and I know that most real change happens on the basis of work done over the course of many years by people you're never going to hear about in offices that are are very anonymous. And that's not sexy. And you you don't put that on a bumper sticker. I just wrote another article about this for the editorial board that this is a lot of what we're seeing out of Joe Biden and his administration right now. They've walked a very fine line on Ukraine. And they've done it because, as former State Department senior uh, policy staffer Max Bergman said on my show, but kind of behind the scenes, they're doing all the things that a well-managed administration does. They're, they're thinking about options, they're, they're looking at information, they're arguing, they're having differences of opinion, and they're trying to come up with solutions. Which is a big contrast to how Vladimir Putin does things and how Donald Trump tried to run our government. Well, there's a tremendous value that we all get out of that, but you're not going to hear about it in a 30 second ad. It's just the good stuff that comes out of the guts of slow, incremental, hard work that, that happens over time. I, I just I just don't know if there's a way around that because that's just that's just sort of the baseline, Nature of the, the two
1: parts. The miracle is that we ever learned what Stacey Abrams was up to. I mean, right. really, you almost never hear about this. And, and, and the fact that she's kind of like this it makes it easier to understand. I mean, there was a study that was done a long time ago about how hard it is for us as a charity that tells you that a thousand kids are suffering and are, are going to starve today raises far less money than someone who says, tells you about one kid. Right. <laughs> you, because our brain just can't comprehend. So, so the fact that Stacey Abrams has kind of come be the front person for this kind of movement politics is a great thing. And I think Beto O'Rourke actually we have is, is is doing a lot of this in Texas, and there's a lot of this going on in Texas. It's just it's just so much harder in Texas, and they're trying to replicate. They're trying to make Georgia look like Texas. If you're really wondering what when you see all this stuff with wrangling, so so I, I actually I, I thought your point about that was it's exactly right. There's the, the whole statement of William Buckley the National Review was saying that we are standing athwart history and yelling stop. Yelling stop is a lot easier, and getting people to stop is a lot easier than getting people to go. And, 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 the, and there's a lot of stop right now. And there's a lot of stop for things we thought we were solved. Like LGBT rights. there's a lot of stop that where they're targeting, they're going after kids with that, there's the backlash that we're seeing to the Black Lives Matter movement that has turned into this idea that teach African-American history in schools. I mean, like there, there's a lot of backlash and backlash politics are contagious. It just, they're, they're, it hits, the, we talked about the brains, the reptilian part of the brain, when you're scared of what you're going to, what you're going to, what you have is going to be lost. So that kind of politics is, is is much more contagious, and I also think there was other. There's one other point about this. There's also way more movement conservatives than there are movement liberals or movement. There's a move. There's there's a, there are movement anti-Trump people and there are movement Obama people, but there's not there's a conservative movement that has been nurtured and generated for decades since the you saw it happen right before your eyes. I'm sure through AM radio that became Fox News, then now Facebook. That is it is just it's a powerful movement. And they don't just dabble in politics, they live it. They watch Fox all day long, if you watch most of the people who watch Fox. And there's not, people say there's an ancillary of MSNBC. MSNBC, what is the clear ideology of MSNBC? I mean, I, I don't know it in general. Is there some connection between Morning Joe and, and Rachel Maddow? I, I don't see it if there is, other than they, they're pretty good TV presenters, I guess, and we're interested in their, their dating lives, I guess. I guess that's the two things that we have in common with those. But, but there's just not this kind of ancillary, politics is a lifestyle thing on the left too. And I, I think that that's also part of it. And this is connected to two, two things, I think, are in a large way. is evangelical megachurches, and also there's more gun clubs in America than there are McDonald's. So there's kind of like physical places you can go to and be a Republican. Where is that for, de- for Democrats? Well, well,
0: I mean, yeah, that's true. It's that that kind of baseline thing that's in our DNA, right? Yelling stop versus let me give you let me give you a long nuanced answer about what it is we need to do here. That, it does play out in all of these ways. I mean, first of all, that there isn't really clear, this is, it used to be very easy to do a little social experiment where you would say, all right, people, especially if you have a room, you'd say, all right, quickly, just in a sentence, tell me what Republicans stand for and shout it out, go. And you would hear people shout out basically like, Strong defense, low taxes, conservative social values, some version of that, right? All right, now, same experiment. Tell me what Democrats stand for, and you would just get the Tower of Babel, right? Because it's like, it, it is really all over the map, and it, it is sort of the Republicans' inbuilt home court advantage. It, what they have to say is simpler, it's emotionally easier, it's fewer words it it kind of adheres to the if you're explaining you're losing principle. Democrats are always explaining. We always have to explain, look, when we say defund the police, what we really mean is a complex set of adjustments that would involve increasing social outreach. And It's like, we're done with that. All I heard was you're against cops and you want me to get shot. So that is an inbuilt advantage. But I do... I do want to go back to your earlier point as well, which is, which is really spot on because in the background, there are people who get it. And I actually wrote an an article for Newsweek about exactly what you were talking about with Stacey Abrams. And it was back in November. You can Google it. I, I, I wrote the title is Stacey Abrams just gave Democrats a blueprint for saving themselves. And my point was when her organization went out and wiped out $212 million, in medical debt for 108,000 people across five states. It got some headlines, but all that evaporated. You're not going to see any of that in the 30-second ads in her current race for governor. But it's that work in the background at the grassroots level where she's starting a relationship with those people by doing the put up or shut up, by actually making a difference in their lives and opening them up to a conversation about, hey, have you registered? Are you are you going to go vote? And that's the kind of long game work that we don't we don't invest in, we don't think about enough. But a few people have figured out that that's what we really need to do.
1: I, I think that that's a beautiful point, point. and I actually think it kind of ties to what I was starting to think about. What is the one thing that we need to stand for in this kind of argument that I was saying? And and if I were going to say it right now, it's democracy, and that's right. why the donating matters so much. I mean, really. I know this is a tough thing to convince people, and people who dislike Trump get this inherently. And I think people who think about January 6th, which you, you probably haven't very much if, if you're not kind of tied into politics, they don't like the idea of January six. but people do not get how much democracy really is on the line, how close we got. And this idea of democracy and building citizens that the fair fight is kind of embraced it's something that Democrats need to do on every level. And this is something the Koch brothers fund. They, they do citizenship classes for people who are learning learning Spanish-speaking citizenship classes because they get it before Trump came along. They're like, we eventually need to win some Latino voters. So what's what's actually kind of like, let's, let's, let's build an infrastructure that, that supports the idea that citizenship is a right-leaning thing. But you, you make real connections and there's a kind of, a, it kind of seems like in a, in a certain way back to the old school politics where you're handing out turkeys to get to get people to vote for you. But in a certain sense, everyone is a the saint there's a theory of the two Santas that they used to talk about with politics <laughs> every poll either you're getting tax tax breaks from Republicans or you're getting you know help from Democrats and I think the Democrats don't make the case enough for democracy on the workplace level, on the, on the community level, taking part in every element of politics and and, and and the value of being a citizen. And I think if Democrats could make it so what we stand for is democracy and citizenship, that'd be an incredibly patriotic rebuke to Republicans saying, we stand for you getting a bigger paycheck. And
0: what a messaging shorthand too. We could finally capture in just a few words what it is that the Democratic Party stands for, which is like, I was actually in Israel on a congressional staff delegation. And I was trying to explain to a bunch of Israeli students the difference between the two political parties and I'm a Democrat it was like I I was able to sum up the Republican Party and what they stand for and then I'm like so Democrats this is really hard but I love that you just alluded to the giving out turkeys thing I literally put that in that Newsweek article I said that what Stacey Abrams is doing harkens back to an earlier and kind of misunderstood era of politics and Tammany Hall and what that machine politics grew out of was hey you know there's a big group of irish immigrants here and uh, they're citizens now and they can vote and why don't we reach out to them and give them something meaningful in their day-to-day lives let's let's do the work on the front end and do the politics on the back end and too often what we do kind of tactically is the reverse we try and give people things on the front end by saying, well, we're multicultural. We care about people who look like you. We are people who look like you. So why don't you just vote for us? And the natural question that springs from that is, what are you actually doing for me? What is it? Show me. Don't tell me. Show me, which is. And just to kind of round it back to your point about making ourselves the party of democracy, it does connect to something that you suggested in your article and I tried to pick up on in my article it's not all just about dollars. There's a real kind of Catholic Protestant schism element to this of like justification through faith and justification through works. And you could just give money, right? And and that's sort of the, the faith thing. It's like, I will give and good things will happen if the right people get in office. But you could also go out and do some grassroots stuff yourself. And that was your suggestion about run for something. You could run for a local office. If that's a little bit of a bridge too far for you, you could simply sign up to be a poll worker. And in my article, I put some links for how people can go ahead and do that. It's not that hard, but it's a very direct way to respond to the fact that Steve Bannon has found 8,500 new Republican precinct workers in 65 key battleground counties just because he put out on his podcast, hey, go sign up to be a poll worker if you're like a big lie acolyte like me and you want to mess with the Democrats in the next election. The only way to fight back about that is to have sane, rational people sign up to be poll workers so that they can't get away with stealing the next election.
1: There's a social media aspect of this too. The reason that Marcus Johnson or whoever's running against Marjorie Taylor Greene ends up raising so much money is because people retweet his message. He goes, I'm going to beat Marjorie Taylor Greene don't retweet the bad messages, find the good messages, boost the good message. Every little bit counts. Going out there and finding these retweeting, looking at the go. If you were wondering who to support, go look at runs for something's candidates. They're, they're supporting a, a lot of candidates of color, black candidates, younger candidates. They're all about younger getting, they're not millennials anymore because millennials are my age and almost, and in their forties, zoomers are, are starting to run for office. But if you're looking for good people to run, I think that was the best thing about your article. And i was so excited about is there's really no lack of examples of where you could put your money. It's a target rich environment, as Maverick said to Goose. Adopt. Yes, exactly. Adopt any of these things. Pick a pick. You're going to have your maps are going to, there is a vulnerable person. If he's not in your district, there's someone on your ballot that's vulnerable that, that, that you need to work And my state. My governor really, really matters because that could stop the plot to steal the state in 2024. So there's, there's, there's just so much we could be giving on. And there's just so, it's just every dime that goes to Marjorie Taylor Green is a pain. And I, and I just I just feel like in the fight against democracy, we can't afford to bleed out the way we are in these districts.
0: Well, first of all, your governor is incredibly important if we can keep her unkidnapped, which kind of yes. goes to the point of, yes. I, I do want to bring this full circle as we kind of uh, round the bend toward the end of the episode, that there is a component here about sort of controlling ourselves and curating our own intake of media and social media and information. And that's sort of where I, again, this was this was totally inspired by your article and it ended up in my article, right? Like mine was sort of the Empire Strikes back to your Star Wars that I, I, there is that's sort of the third suggestion that I offer to people is adjust your media diet. I had the former chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, Steve Israel, on this show maybe three weeks ago. And he wrote an article for The Hill just before that, where he's like, hey, unsubscribe from all the emails from the campaigns. Just just unsubscribe. Don't hit stop when you get one of those fundraising texts. Curate your own intake of these entreaties for, for fundraising and what you do on social media. And the other thing I do at the end of my article is I say, follow the people on Twitter who are giving good information, focusing on the races that we need to focus on, and aren't just amplifying the latest outrage pointlessly for no reason, but are trying to point to the stuff that really matters. And I throw out names like yours. People should follow LOL G-O-P on Twitter. People should follow Matt L. Robeson on Twitter too, please. I don't have 350,000 followers. I, I would like, I would like to get 0.3% uh, of Jason's following on Twitter. That, that's my new goal. But People can people can do that for themselves. All right, we're we're rounding the bend. We've got 30 seconds left. If there's one thing that you'd like people to take away from your article, my article, this conversation, to go forward for the rest of this cycle, what would it be?
1: Pick a candidate to support who is not running against Marjorie Taylor Greene. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one thing. I mean, and amplify, donate, and put time in. Do what you can, and and recognize that it's not just our brains and our and our well-being that are at stake; it's our democracy that's at stake.
0: Oh, that is just admirably succinct. We were joking off the air before we got on about that moment when Joe Biden was asked, "Can you constrain your verbal tendencies to go on and on and on?" Bullet in the debate, he says, "Yes." yes. <laughs> you just did. You just did the Biden. You gave thing me a where... character
1: count, and I was tw- like Twitter. <laughs> that, that that helps. So.
0: There is a certain value in the discipline imposed by the character count in Twitter Absolutely. that I lack in my own writing. When people read this article, I can't give you the title yet because my editor hasn't gotten back to me on that. But look. Follow my editor, John Store, or he's, he's the editorial board on Twitter and, and check out and subscribe to the editorial board where you will get Jason Sattler, LOL GOP. And you'll get me and you'll get lots of other writing that that focuses on what really matters. And I agree co- completely with what you just said. Get active, curate your media diet, focus on the races and the issues that matter and do what you can. Jason, thanks so much for being on Beyond Politics. Great conversation, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you.